This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. guys welcome back to another episode of the chasing tales outdoor podcast if you're joining us for the first time the goal of this podcast is simple we want to inspire you to get outside and enjoy the great outdoors and everything that it's got to offer and we hope to do so by bringing you awesome topics and awesome stories from all over the country my name is walt and i am joined by my co-host from the far corner of florida remotely chase Iceman. dude how are you doing have you killed anything lately <laughs> I actually have not been that much. Uh, I've had to work a little bit and doing some overtime and stuff. It's it's kind of killing me because, like I said, muzzleloader is my time. But I've really only put in, like, one hunt uh, since it started. Um, I tried to – it was a f- funny – this is a funny story. I, I tried to go this morning. I got off of work. I was just going to hit up kind of one of my rut areas where a bunch of deer – I'll see a bunch of deer chasing and stuff. I get in the stand. And it wasn't, and this this stand's kind of on a like a huge power line that's about forty yards across. And I get there, and probably five minutes later, this truck pulls up and stops probably twenty yards from the stand and is just sitting there. <laughs> and I'm like, what on earth is this truck doing? Um, it had its lights flashing and all kinds of stuff. And I'm like trying to look at the guys in the vehicle, and I, they finally kind of noticed me. And the the driver got out, and he kind of he's like. Uh, he's like, hey, man, is this hunting se- Is it hunting season? I'm like, yeah, it's been hunting season for about a month now. I mean, you can tell he just had no clue. Uh, he's like, well, we're with the, uh, the power company, and we're going to be doing an inspection today. And I'm like, awesome. I was like, okay, cool. Well, I'll try not to shoot you guys. <laughs> and I thought they were going to move on. You know what I mean? Like, I thought they were – and they were talking about trees. And I'm like, well, there's no trees anywhere near this, so they're probably just going to ride up and down. Uh, this area and be like, okay, uh, we should be good to go. And they just sat there and sat there and sat there. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and get down. I got down. I kind of like did some like a little bit of scouting and walking through the woods and stuff. Came back through that area. They were out of the truck walking all over the place. (laughs) And I was like, oh yeah, this, this is done. Um, And I had somewhere I had to be soon anyway. So I ended up just hightailing it out of there. But I haven't, like I said, I went the other day. I was sending you some pics of some deer. Uh, that I yeah. was seeing. Uh, just hadn't had a shooter uh, come in range. I was actually hunting with my bow the other day. Um, so certain areas I'll just take my bow in because, I mean, they're tight spots. Um, and the bow kind of seems to be a little bit more uh, efficient in those areas. But, yeah, ha- hadn't been much. Uh, I'm going in the morning. So hopefully uh, I'll get on a, a big one. But your season is getting dialed up, man. So I know you got to be pumped. Yeah, by the time everybody listens to this episode, my season will have kicked off, 
and uh, hopefully by the time they're listening to this, I've punched all five of my tags, and it's just time to you know focus on redfish or something. <laughs> I can tell you this. I can tell you this much. You are passing on deer that there's no way in hell I would pass up. In fact, you sent me a video of one, and I sat there watching the whole video going, please don't pass on that deer. Please don't pass on that. He's going to shoot this thing. And then I realized you don't have a camera arm, so you didn't have any choice but to pass on it So if you were recording it. So... Yeah, I uh, yeah, I got some. I've got a three day weekend ahead of me. Actually, like a three and a half day weekend ahead of me, and so I'm gonna spend two days before the season checking trail cameras, coming up with a game plan, hunting some public, and uh, dude, I'm gonna hit the season running. The first two weekends, I've got no obligations, nothing to tie me down besides letting the dogs out midday for a break, and I plan on hunting my butt off. So sweet, man. Well, knock yeah. one down for chasing tails, and then it'll be part one with Walter. <laughs> um, that'll be awesome. Yeah. Um, I do have an announcement to make. Which oh, man, official. go for it. Um, I I found out what my buck scored for everybody <laughs> wanting to know what the what the buck scored. Uh, he ended up grossing 128 uh, was the, the final tally on him. And I actually ended up winning the competition. So I have a brand new bear bow set up coming my way. That's awesome, dude! Congratulations. Thank you, thank you, man. I was stoked when I when I got the phone call. So yeah. Um, now I'm I'm, I'm hoping now I'm just going to be rocking two bows, I guess. I've and the last <laughs> over the last two seasons, it's been kind of comical because I've actually needed yeah. a backup bow <laughs> with some of the stuff yeah. that's happened. And uh, I'm like, well, now I got my backup bow, so uh, I'm good to go. That's it. That's it. That's right. Well, dude, that's awesome, man. I I think. Uh, the only thing that could make this season better is if you get after your third target buck and you drop him, we're pretty much going to f- quit talking about the one you killed on public for a while because he is just a freak. In fact, you you hinted at it on the podcast itself. Right. Yeah, yeah. He, he's, a, he's a deer that know from last year, and he just blew up this year. And a lot of times, I mean, you'll say, oh, this deer, he got a little bit bigger or whatever. I mean, when I'm talking about blow up, he probably added 25 – inches or or more um and that's just i mean i haven't ever really seen that following trail cam pics and stuff like that before (laughs) so i'm just like uh and i actually it's funny part is i walked up on that deer last year like uh 15 feet and we were like face to face when he was uh a smaller i mean a little bit smaller than he is now obviously but uh but he was all busted up and uh I, i never did and i had my gun i mean but he didn't present me a shot any. It was funny because we were just kind of like – we just stared at each other for probably like 10 seconds. Kind of like, yep. uh, what is going on? Because I made this corner turn, and he was just there feeding on some acorns underneath an oak tree. <laughs> and I was like, what is going on here? Which I'm glad nothing happened because now he's <laughs> he's this – I would call like a Florida giant this year. But if I get on him, I get on him. Uh, I'm going to have fun either way. Uh, trying to figure him out and get on him, and there's and there's still some other deer that I'm kind of after too that are uh, in that uh, older class range uh, as well. So uh, I'm looking forward to that, and we still got a long season ahead of us. Oh uh, yeah, and I'll be out there grind. I'm still going to be out there grinding throughout the whole season, and I still got three tags left. So looking to fill some and of you, those. And you and you still got all the the late season quota hunts that you and I drew. So I mean, there's some oh yeah, plenty saving, of opportunity. Saving one for that. <laughs> well, 
let's get let, go ahead and let the listeners get to the show. I do have to apologize. There was a bit of a technical difficulty at the beginning, so I'm going to probably sound a little bit distant for the first, uh, let's say, ten minutes of the of the of the podcast. But the content of the podcast, this is one of my favorite podcasts to date. I say that every episode, so I don't know if it's lost its luster or not. I just really enjoy recording these, and I know you guys enjoy listening to them. So uh, I'm just going to keep saying it. But this is one of my favorite to date that we have recorded. Um, and I want to get you to it, but before we do that, I need to make a couple announcements. First, we want to thank Tethered for being the title sponsor of this podcast. We talk saddle hunting on this podcast. In fact, the guest asked us some awesome questions that I think may relate to you if you're considering getting into saddle hunting. So pay special attention when we start talking about saddles because Chase and I share some perspectives on why we think saddle hunting is a no-brainer. And I think we we converted a, a, a new saddle hunter as well, so www.tetherednation.com jump on there and order yourself a saddle now we have had more growth in our patreon account and if you're listening to this for the first time patreon is a way for you to support the show financially it's a small monthly donation we've got a two a five and a ten dollar tier and each of those tiers come with their own benefits Uh, if you join the 10 month tier you get a hat from us a uh, shout out on the podcast. If you turn the, join the five dollar tier, you get a decal and a shout out on the podcast. But in addition to that, we do quarterly giveaways. And last quarter, we gave away a predator platform to Derek Eckert. He won that simply by supporting the show. So if you're interested in supporting the show, this month we're going to be giving away two Havilon Peranta knives. And uh, all you have to do is support the show. So jump on Patreon dot com forward slash chasing tales outdoors check a look at what's there and if you enjoy the show you want to support us you want access to some exclusive content and some free gear every once in a while i mean this is a no-brainer so we're going to thank christian yule john porter Derek eckert and gavin this episode those are all new patreon supporters who have chosen to uh support us and and support our uh, the, our growth into youtube offset the cost of this podcast and uh, we appreciate you doing it I think that's it, Chase. You want to go ahead and uh, let's let them listen to the podcast? Let's dive in. All right. Y'all enjoy. All right, guys. We are back with another guest, one that uh, has, has already got uh, right to the chase and, and, and made jokes at my expense per Adrian Wilson's uh, uh, request. So, Adrian, congratulations, dude. You made it back onto the podcast, and you didn't even have to be on the episode. But uh, we, we've got an awesome dude hailing from the state of Tennessee. In fact, I think only the – second guest to come on the show from the state of Tennessee, William Spalding. Dude, how you doing? I'm awesome, guys. How about yourselves? Uh, any, any better? I couldn't stand it. I'm talking hunting. It's a cold front. Chase, what about you? Oh, man, the the rut's kicking in where I'm at, so I'm getting super pumped right now. So I, I'm doing good. <laughs> William, have you had a chance to get into the woods at all this year? I've gotten in several days. I have more days than I'd like to I, – I can admit to. I've but I've only gotten one doe thus thus far. Um, but no, I've had some good hunts. We've had a lot warmer weather than I would like. It's like we still haven't had any type of frost. I think we've had a, maybe one or two days that were 30, 40 degree type weather. It's just been so warm lately and very little rain. We're, we're now picking up some more rain. So the food plots we got in the ground are getting the much needed rain that they need. That's awesome, man. Has, has it been a dry summer for you like it has been for us? Yeah. Okay. So we had a, yeah. we had a ton of rain early on, uh, and then July, August, September. I mean, I can probably count on one hand the amount of good rains we had. 
Um, and so it really hit us hard. And then we actually actually had some, I don't know if you guys had any EHD. We had some EHD pop up in our farm. Uh, really? Where we were. Yeah, yeah, we had a, a few cases of it. We think it was. It, it could have just been, you know, random old age type stuff. But from what we could tell, it looked like, you know, they were in the water. Uh, classic sign for us, at least. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we don't really get, we don't, I mean, I don't think there's ever been any cases of EHD down here. Not that I'm aware of, or I've never yeah. come across it. Um, no. But in my area this summer, I mean, we had quite a bit of rain. So. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. We. I mean. I, I was pumped because I was like, oh, wow. Because, like I said, you got all the, the natural stuff going on that the deer are naturally browsing on and all that stuff. So I'm like, well, maybe the uh, the antlers will be a little bit bigger this year because of all the rain we got. <laughs> like, man, this is awesome. So I didn't realize y'all – I mean, you're only, what, two, two and a half hours away from me and weren't getting yeah. any rain. So that's kind of strange. And we've had a bunch of rain here recently. Um, we just put some food plots down, and we've been getting a ton of rain. So it's kind of worked out for what us. What kind of food plots do you put in the ground? Um, we did for down here in Florida, we did like this kind of like five seed blend where it had some oats and some rye, uh, some peas, some winter peas, um, stuff like that. And then it's still so warm down here. We, we just planted some more iron clay peas the other day because it's so, it's so warm. Um, and <laughs> I don't foresee any like cold weather in the future. I mean, we, a cold front for us right now is like 55 to 59 degrees, but it still heats up in the day it's still getting up to like 85 degrees oh yeah uh the other day it was like 89 so <laughs> uh, i'm hoping we'll get some cold weather here soon but i, I don't see any coming <laughs> so i grew up hunting in south south georgia uh what if guys, and if you're familiar with like america's georgia all yeah yep. yeah uh, and so back in the day we would plant iron clay cow peas all the way into october and they would come up into November, and it was like you had an ice cream food plot just sitting out there ready to go, and the rut was kicking in. Uh, oh, yeah. We had some really good deer hunting land down there. I mean, some insane deer hunting land. Uh, my last year I was there, hunted there, I want to say I killed a – I think it ended up scoring uh, gross 167 and oh. headed out to a 161 eight-pointer. Wow. Uh, oh my goodness. An eight was a, that big. That's a giant. <laughs> it was, a, it is a giant. It's the biggest year I've ever killed. Uh, <laughs> and it was something that we'd seen. We called it the mule deer buck. Cause we saw it so many times, but it was like glimpses. It was more like a ghost. Uh, and we saw it for year after year after year, but the land that we hunted next to, it was a big, big track of land, about a thousand acres. And the guy that owned it, uh, his wife passed away and after she passed away, he like rid off deer hunting. And so it became a thousand acre, uh, sanctuary of oh, deer. Wow. He wouldn't lease it, wouldn't let anyone hunt it. And so like, if you hunted on the edges of it during the rut, monsters would just run off this land. Uh, <laughs> but it was, it was some good hunting. And so we caught that deer a couple of times, but no, that there, we were very fortunate to have that land, um, uh, and to be able to hunt. It was awesome. Yeah, you know, I, I grew up in Southeast Georgia, uh, hunted a lot of like uh, the Waycross area, the the Hazelhurst type area of, of yeah. Georgia, and you know, iron clay peas. As quickly as you planted them, they were gone. <laughs> I mean, they just they come up, they never make it past you know like six seven inches because the the soil over there was so poor that that like quickly became the dominant food source. Yep. You know, but you know, we're kind of lucky. The only the only disease that, that Florida really faces is uh, in the fall, there's all these random cases of rapid blood loss. And 
you know, outside of that, you know, we don't have EHD or CWD, just a lot of, a lot of deer kills, especially that Gainesville area. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, so let's, uh, let's talk about this. You, you grew up hunting in South, in South Georgia. How'd you end up in Tennessee? Uh, work, work took okay. me. So I, I grew up in Atlanta. That's where I'm, that's where I, I hail from. And so I used to, I went to high school in South Atlanta and so my family had a farm in South Georgia, and then we had a small house in Atlanta where my dad had his main job. And so uh, I used to split my time. It was actually because of all the crazy traffic in Atlanta. It was a sometimes quicker to drive 100 miles south <laughs> <laughs> and stay there and do all my homework there by myself and then drive back and go to high school and not fight the traffic in Atlanta versus drive 30 miles through Atlanta wow. traffic. Uh, and so I, I spent a lot of time pretty much during the deer season. I just lived at my farm. It was awesome. I would get in trouble if I showed up late, but the high school, because Atlanta had such crazy traffic, it was pretty accepting of people coming in late because it was just a, a regular occurrence because the traffic was so bad. Um, and so I grew up hunting in, uh, South Georgia, actually before South Georgia, if you really want to go way back, I, the first one I was like four, I started on when I was four, I would say four or five. We had a lease, a lease in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, just outside of Lounsboro, and yep. uh, we started started hunting there. And there was two categories if you in the lease. It was kind of a membership. We had about twenty people that paid to be in the the club or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, there was the guys that had younger kids, and then the guys that had older kids. And the older kids, when they grew up in about five years, they all went to Auburn. And it, the farm turned into like a fraternity house. And so <laughs> every, like you'd show up on weekend, there'd be like 40 guys going hunting and you're like, I, you know, it's like first come first serve for getting stands type of stuff. And <laughs> you could never get a stand. And the next thing you know, like you get up five minutes late and everyone's left and you look at the board and you're like, there's nowhere to hunt. And so we got out of that membership and we actually uh, had a friend, a friend of a friend that introduced us that was a, this is a crazy story, but he was the largest peanut farmer uh, in the world at one point. And so he wow. had a, a ton of land uh, that he never leased for deer hunting. Uh, he farmed it all. He, I want to say he had like 30,000 acres, 40,000 acres across Georgia wow. that he farmed all for peanuts. He, he just, he knew my, we got to know him. He's like, he was a hardcore deer hunter and he, he saw my boots and he's like, dude, you need to, you're into the deer hunting thing and everything. And so he just said, here's, you know, here's a hundred acres have at it uh and so we got started on that land and then he kind of gave us a little bit more land when we had the lease it was all in crp which is awesome uh but they were hardcore managed i don't know if you guys ever had experience with that but alabama at least in that county they were pretty tightly managing your what was crp land and so they they the guys in that area would not let us plant any food plants uh it had to stay strictly for like not you know pure habitat wild habitat uh, huh. So when we got to Georgia, we were able to start really getting into the food plot aspect and the land that budded up to us on the other side was another large chunk of land that was actually managed by uh, or owned by a celebrity couple. I won't mention their names, but uh, <laughs> they hired James Kroll. If you're familiar with that guy, Dr. Deer. Yeah. And, yeah. And so he introduced us to food plots and you know what to plant, how to plant it. So I got his books when I was like in middle school and I actually did a book report on it. And so uh, 
but no, we got into the hardcore deer, deer food plots and how to do everything the Dr. Deer way. We've since evolved from that kind of methodology, but no, that's where, where we got started. And then uh, I went, I ended up going to the Citadel in college and then work took me to Nashville, Tennessee. And I've been here ever since. Actually, I've moved around since then, but it's been in Florida and then Western Carolina. Uh, that's why I see an A2A phone number. That's, that's where I get that one. But uh, work brought me back to Nashville and that's how I'm here. That's awesome, man. So you just, you're the perfect guest in the regard that you just checked off list by list item things we had on our itinerary to talk about. (laughs) 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 I I was going to ask you how you got into hunting, but you pretty well did that. So, so I I actually, I'm originally into healthcare. So it's weird. Uh, I did healthcare. I did healthcare operations. And so I just pivoted. Fleet was uh, the first hunting outdoors. So, before this, I worked for a rural hospital provider. We owned, the company I worked for owned around 72, 75 rural hospitals around the country. And I ran their strategic operations for their uh, the physician practices. So uh, I won't go into the nuances, but if you own a hospital in a rural area, you have to employ physicians to maintain that hospital uh, or else you're not going to have doctors. You don't have doctors. You don't have hospitals essentially. Right. Uh, and so we had all these hospitals around the country. And so we had to employ physicians because just the generally the physician market wants to, there's an employment model that works. And so we had all these, uh, physician practices. I think we employed around 2,600 providers at the time when I left 26, 2,800 providers. Uh, and so I ran around the country trying to keep these practices afloat and running efficiently, uh, and it became, it was a tough gig. I'm not going to lie. Trying to convince a surgeon to remove, uh, relocate to the most rural, rural aspects. Yeah. Uh, it was tough. I spent a lot of time in the upper peninsula of Michigan. Awesome hunting. I was so lucky when I'd go up there, I'd, I had a couple doctors that would take me hunting up there. It was awesome. Uh, so there were some perks to the job, but no, trying to convince a surgeon that you need to go move to the Arctic circle equivalent of the UP. <laughs> It's a tough gig. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was sitting there, I was like, you know, I wasn't getting the same amount of hunting time that I used to get when I was little. My dad took me hunting every weekend. And if it wasn't hunting season, we were planting food plots, looking for sheds. Like I never went to a high school party because I was always in the woods. Like that was just my passion growing up. And I now have kids and I couldn't get that same opportunity. I couldn't take my son because I was always either working, traveling or planning to travel, you know, I would leave most days, Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, I'm coming back Friday night and maybe have Saturday. And so when you do the long distance traveling, you're, you got to get your dry cleaning done. Yeah. You do your laundry and you just got to kind of melt into the couch just to kind of be at home. And so I was sitting there, I was like, why am I doing this? You know, you know, I'm not getting the same opportunity in my passions in the woods. I'm getting fewer and fewer days out there. And so I was like, screw this. I'm going to go do this. Uh, and so I found a way to get into it and here I am. So let's talk about that. You, you are the CEO of fleet Backcountry. That's athlete without the a, what is fleet for the people who don't so, know? Fleet is a, uh, it is a deer hunting, uh, camo branded company. We make high end. I, I don't like to say high end, high performance camouflage in our own camouflage that we designed. Uh, it's called our deadfall pattern. It is the foundation of fleet. So, and 
we take, we designed our own camouflage. We did it ourselves. And the whole premise is it's a breakout pattern. And what that means if you, for people that don't know, generally I take the stance that I feel like camouflage today has geared too far into the direction of just too dark. It's great at replicating. Like it looks immaculate. Like if I look at some of the real tree mossy oak, they've done an outstanding job of creating the most awesome graphics. Like it looks like a freaking picture on your clothes. It's so, it's like a high definition picture. It's on your back mm-hmm. and it looks amazing. But I believe uh, based on my hunting experience and what I know, I feel like it's less about the minutia details and more about the, the larger breakout type items in the garment. So you need more contrasting colors. Uh, you don't need everything to look like a deer's not going to notice the stick on your shirt. They're going to see the same general shape. And so if you look like a dark object, I say, you know, a deer's going to see like the swamp thing moving, like a very dark object up in a tree. They're not going to notice that you have a, you know, a green leaf and a stick here. And so when you're in a deer stand, you want to have those, you know, colors that break out. So they bring in equal amounts of light colors like whites, tans, and then the dark colors. And so when they look at you, you're totally breaking out in the silhouette of what's around you. And so that that's how we came to the conclusion, the deadfall pattern uh, to create that. That makes a lot of sense. And so the, the deadfall pattern is the foundation of our company. And then we then took the premise of, you know, we got a lot of competitors out there, the Kuyus of the world, the First Lights of the world, the Sukas of the world. They're putting out great products. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that they're doing something different, but what they are doing is they're taking a Western hunting brand uh, that's very geared towards the Western mountains, and then saying it, it has applications for the deer hunter, and it does have applications. Like you can take those things, but I'm a deer hunter guy. I I love deer hunting. I I've been elk hunting. I've been out west. I've done a lot of stuff out there, but. I, every day, uh, twice on Sunday, I'll, I'd rather go deer hunting. It's just, it's in my blood. And so there's ways to maximize that. Like I want to eat, drink, and sleep deer hunting. And so let's design <laughs> everything for the deer. Um, and so that's where we're going to be coming at you with specifically for the whitetail hunting experience, the right fabric, the right design, uh, and for the right environment. Uh, a huge missed opportunity, I feel like is the southern deer hunter it's just there's not a company out there that's offering scratching that itch for those guys because like we were talking earlier when i hunted in georgia it's 80 degrees in november what do you wear uh what's the right pattern to be wearing what's to be successful you know wind uh scent control all that stuff that goes into that how do you layer it works well for out west guys because they you know that's what their gear is more designed for but for us it's just a different so what you're going to see from us is how can we take the right fabrics, the right designs, and really go crazy with it? How can we maximize that value for those guys to make every deer hunter successful? Right on, man. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think the southern market is is something that uh, a lot of people have kind of overlooked. And I think if you look at the extreme temperature swings that are here and you compare it to the adverse conditions out west, there's a lot of similarities. You know, I mean, I went hunting in Colorado this past fall and you have highs in the seventies and lows in the thirties. That's a 40 degree change. And we have the same changes here, but it tends to come with, you know, blustery winds and stuff like that. So I'm curious, how does your technical garment, how do your technical garments, 
uh, stack for the Southern Hunter? So we try to encourage uh, people into Merino for at least a base layer. Not I hate to say a base layer, but just if I'm in the early season, I just wear a Merino shirt. And it may be 50 degrees. I'm fine with that. We have a heavy Merino. Uh, Merino is a is not known to the I, I'm going to make a broad statement here and it might offend some people <laughs> but merino doesn't seem to be known among deer hunters at least in the south as it categorically uh, you know they don't understand what it is uh and a lot of guys complain it makes them itchy when we go out west everyone knows merino it's it's known in the the skiing culture the hiking culture like it's just all, all the brands that serve those areas it, people know it but the people that are, grew up in the Mossy Oak real trees of the world, the sticks and leaf brands, they just don't understand that Merino, what it does, why it is, and uh, what it serves. But it is a awesome garment, awesome fabric for regulating your temperature. It's because if it comes, the fibers come from an animal versus a synthetic, it's going to keep you much more regulated. So if it's 90 degrees, uh, you're not going to get so hot. If it's 50 degrees, you're not going to get so cold. It's just going to keep you static and much more controlled. And it also a kind of a secret or it has much more scent lock properties built into it because the bacteria that causes that scent doesn't stick to it. I'm going to make the real scent gurus will say that scent <laughs> bacteria doesn't stick, but broad statement, the scent doesn't, the bacteria doesn't stick to the fibers the same way. And so you're not going to have a stinky shirt like you would with a synthetic. The other cool thing that I do with it, because it, unlike a synthetic or uh, a traditional moisture wicking shirt that most people think of, the job of that fiber is to pull moisture off of your skin and then pull it out into the environment. And so it dries really quickly. Merino's not going to dry quickly. It's going to pull moisture off your skin, but it's going to hold it in that yarn. So like if you ever wash a Merino shirt, you're going to see that it takes forever to dry. Yep. Uh, that's because it's holding that moisture into that fabric. The cool thing that I like about it, that from a deer hunting perspective is you can douse that stuff with scent control stuff. I don't know if you guys do the sprays or not. If you believe in the spray, I'm a spray guy. I believe in it. It holds it in there. And so you're going to have a much longer scent control free, even though the bacteria doesn't stick to it, you can, you can kind of double it down, uh, wear the Merino shirt, spray it with the scent control property stuff. And then go where, and then you're good. And it's going to keep you much more static in the early season. And then when you get into the later seasons, you can throw on some of our soft shell type garments that has the ability to control the wind, keep you warm. And then if you need to go a bit getting really cold, you can throw on more of our layering systems, the vest, the insulating layer. We we got all slices of that in our brand. I think I think the the statement about merino being a a antimicrobial type you know scent scent fighting situation is is borne out by anybody who tries it the first year because i used a lot of wool last year even when it was hot especially when Mm -hmm. it was hot you know and i'm talking like wool boxers wool t-shirt you know the areas that get really stinky right and Mm -hmm. it was amazing to me how little i smelled after you know under normal conditions i'd be getting the car being like oh okay, well, we need to burn these clothes when I get back to the house. You know, I mean, it's it was night and day. But, Chase, I think the thing you're most excited about, we have some of, of your, your gear, the soft shell 
Chase has been wearing the snot out of the pants, and I'm thrilled about the fact that it's a light, you know, a lightweight, uh, windproof shell because. Again, in the South, you don't face, you know, 20-degree temperatures so much as you, you face 35, 45 with, you know, 20-mile-an-hour winds. Yep. And the, and that soft shell, so we went a lot of – spent a lot of time right finding the right fabric. What I like to tell people, the difference is we found the right fabric for the right price. Uh, deer hunting, like it's the difference between deer hunting and out West, and I'll, I'll keep pulling comparing because we're a deer hunting brand, but – we're different because price is a component for us. Uh, we have a lot more, like if I'm out West hunting elk, I don't have the same expenses that a traditional deer hunter type thing is. We don't have to lease land. Uh, out West, you're hunting more public lands. You don't have to deal with the food plots. You don't have to deal with all the other aspects that we and deer hunters kind of take on. And, but we have the same money. Like we're, we're not spending more money generally not spending more money than the same the people out west we just have the same kind of pot of money that we're dealing with uh we can't spend a ton of money on our clothes because we're having to spend money in other aspects uh unless you're wealthy beyond means and so i've kind <laughs> <Not> of me <laughs> yep <laughs> i've come at it from the perspective that we price has to be uh, a component of this and so i i'm equally sensitive to you have to find the right fabric, but you also have to have it at the right price. And so we found this great soft shell material that bonded to a fleece backer that allows us to give you an outstanding value. When I say value, like you're going to get results like the, the CFM rating is near zero. I mean, which means that it's going to be almost totally windproof for you. And then with the DWR treatment, it's going to keep you water resistant. It's not a rain jacket. Uh, we are working on a rain jacket and have some rain wear probably next year, uh, but it's going to keep you dry for most intensive purposes. If you if you go out in the downpouring rain and you just sit out there, you might get wet. Uh, eventually, you will get wet. You, if you want to challenge the DWR treatment on that <laughs> coat, uh, you can do it. But uh, from my experience, at least for most deer hunters, DWR, if it's pouring, 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 most guys are going to get down and go sit in their truck. And then when it dries up or slows down a little bit, then you go back out. That's what we came at. It's more of our anchor system, at least for where we're serving. Our market's been born more out of the Midwest. Uh, and then as we kind of go further south, we're coming out with a new lineup that is uh, pretty cool. Like we're working on some garments that we're pulling more from like cycling. It sounds weird, but if I'm in Riding a bike in the Tour de France or whatnot, they have to have items that are super lightweight, super breathable, super waterproof, super windproof. Like, and so those fabrics are out there. It's just how do you apply it to a deer hunter? But deer hunting in the grand scheme of the fabric industry is not that mega. And so we're pulling from like a lot of different recreational areas that have those needs. And we're saying, how can we bring this into deer hunting? And so we've sourced some fabrics that we're, you're going to see in the next year that is like a rain jacket slash windproof jacket that's like a T-shirt-like material. Uh, it's so lightweight. Mm. It's so, And so, the, you know, that's where we're coming at this. And so we're coming out with uh, new items that are going to kind of scratch more of the southern market ditch. And then uh, for the Midwest and then kind of later season in the south markets, our phantom stuff is what keeps you warm. It's got the windproof. It's got the waterproof DWR treatment. 
and it's comfortable. Uh, it's got a, it's got its functional need. And then we kind of incorporated some simple, but I find crucial uh, aspects into the design. I'm not a fan of carrying, lugging my jacket in, uh, in my pack or whatnot. I just want to be done uh, when I get dressed and go to the deer stand. And so like we incorporated ventilation zippers so that I'm not going to build a ton of heat up in my jacket. I just drop the zippers down and I walk to my stand and all the heat that I generate, it's going to come out through those, those big zipper vents, whether it's on the leg and the pants or underneath your armpits in the jacket. So you just throw the jacket on, throw your pants on, you're ready to go. You can throw your scent spray on it. Uh, and then walk to the stand. And then when you get to the stand and you're kind of cooling down a little bit, then you zip up your ventilation and you're good to go. You know, know, I I think that is huge. I sweat like a pig and I have to go really deep sometimes on some of these places. Either I have to, I have to paddle or I have to hike through some not so fun stuff. And I'm always finding myself like wearing a t-shirt and taking layers in. And uh, there were several times last year where I like packed in my layers, wore just my pants and my t-shirt going in there and I'm cold, get to the stand, get it or the saddle, get everything set up and uh, then put on my layers and everything. And it's just, it was, it was what I had to do because I sweat so easily, but it was kind of annoying because a lot of the, the cheaper garments that I had, they didn't have those zippers. So when I saw that I was like super thrilled, but I haven't had an opportunity because my season opens up Friday or um, Saturday. But Chase, you've wore the snot out of the pants on the cold fronts we've had. What What are your thoughts of the pants? Oh man, I love the pants. Uh, like uh, we mentioned, they're super comfortable. Probably the most comfortable pant I've probably put on, like hunting related. Um, they're super quiet. Uh, that was one of the things that I kind of wanted to test out. Is like I said, in, when you're in the stand or you're walking in the woods, you, you want to be stealthy. And I've had some pants before that I bought from another company, and they were just so noisy. I mean, it was more of kind of like an out west brand, and I was just like, man, I'm not going to wear these pants because of how noisy the pants were. I mean, they they were kind of comfortable, but, I mean, they weren't as comfortable as these. Uh, And I I was just super impressed by mainly, like, the stealthness of the pants, and the comfort was just an added bonus to them. And I've even worn them out. I wore the pant out the other day. It was like 70 degrees, and – uh, it wasn't bothering me, but I'm kind of the opposite of you where I'm not a big sweater. I mean, I guess I was just blessed with not sweating <laughs> that much or I just stay in a constant state of dehydration. I don't know what it is, <laughs> but <laughs> I just, I mean, it takes, it takes quite a bit for me to sweat, but any, when I do, I'm not like poor, I'm never like pouring sweat either. Um, so I, I don't have to deal with that as much. Um, but I do like the idea, like, like those, ven- I didn't even. I'm going to have to go back and look at my jacket and all that stuff to kind of go over all those like ventilation holes and everything else. So I can, I like your, like you said, where you don't just pack items in on top of your backpack or in your pack or whatever. And then you have to put them on at the stand. I'm kind of like you. I'd like, uh, I w- want to be one and done and get there and be ready to hunt. One thing that we, we really worked on, I was sensitive to is uh, having the ripstop, a really good ripstop fabric built into those pants. I've had a ton of stuff. I can't stand when stuff rips. It just, it upsets me. It's like, ruins my day, ruins my week. And so the, the key thing that we work on is getting the right rip stops. And so when you go through briars and stuff, your pants don't rip. And they stay, it's, it, it, you can walk through some good stuff and, and your pants don't get trashed. Uh, it's important to us. And so I, 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 I want to hear from folks, if your pants, if, I don't want to encourage people to go run into briars and like try to like... <laughs> <laughs> but like we really tried hard to find a really good ripstop fabric 
so you don't trash your pants. Cause I, I mean, hunting in where I hunt in Tennessee, like it is, it's some nasty stuff that you're walking through all the time. Oh yeah, for sure. Florida's the same way at my all time favorite pair of pants quickly became not my favorite pair of pants. And it was a shame just because of durability. And, mm-hmm. and it was maybe two months into a deer season and I ripped them to shreds and I was, <laughs> I was very distraught because up until then they yes. were my, my favorite. Yeah. But I mean, you know, you got briar, green briar, all kinds of blackberry and raspberry, black raspberry that's around here. I mean, you just, you, you, you're you hard on it if you hunt in the South and that's just the facts of it. All right. I'm going to ask you guys a question because you mentioned hunting in the saddle. And so, and I know you guys <laughs> are saddle hunters. So where I hunt in Tennessee, it is, uh, it is super, super hilly. Um, like I'm talking a lot of the hills, you can't drive trucks or four wheelers or anything up it. So like that type of hills. Uh, so you, I spent a lot of time hiking. It's crazy. So like, if you look at the, how middle Tennessee, I don't know if you're familiar with Tennessee, mm-hmm. they call middle Tennessee. It's a big bowl. And if you hunt the outer edges of the bowl, it's like a crazy ecosystem but it's really, really mountainous. Uh, and so I'm hiking up and down hills. And so I've, I've done a climbing stand. I've done the sticks with a, you know, stand that you can just throw up. And so I'm tired now of, <laughs> <laughs> of carrying all this stuff. And so, and I didn't, like, I've just heard about the saddle hunting and all this aspect of it. Is it really what it cracks up to be? Cause I'm looking for something that I can, I can lessen my load and be much more nimble uh, of getting into it, the right stand, the right tree. Chase, uh, being your recent success, you want to start and I'll, I'll clean up? Yeah, man. Uh, I just started running the saddle this year. Uh, the one thing I can kind of vouch for on the saddle is it's even if you are carrying the weight, it's, you're carrying it differently because you're, like I said, you've got the saddle on your hips and stuff. And, and the saddle – itself with the ropes and everything is what like four or five pounds i believe uh when you include like if you've got some of the ascenders and stuff like that that everything's packed into and then you've got some sticks that may weigh 10 pounds on your backpack or whatever but i mean it's a noticeable difference uh walking because i used to pack in with like a lone wolf and sticks and my backpack all on my back and i mean it was it was it was a pain i was like man there's got to be a better way (laughs) uh to do this and then Walt was hunting with it last year and I went up and hunted with him and he's just in there walking in with like a little backpack and got a couple of sticks. He he's just Mr. Cool over there. And I, here I am got all this stuff on my back. I look like a Ninja turtle, uh, at the time, probably it's just, it's all about kind of like the, the weight transfer. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly how much weight that I probably lost, but it was probably at least uh 10 or 12 pounds or probably 12 pounds. If you count the stand, but mo- all that weight was kind of on my back. I mean, like I said, with the backpack, the sticks, you're talking probably 30 pounds or something to where now all I have on my back is maybe like 12 or 13, and then the saddle's on the hip. And the other thing I really like about the saddle is once you kind of get up, whatever your climbing system is, you're ready to rock and roll because the saddle's on you. So all you got to do is tether into that tree. I mean, you can. there's a platform, but it's nothing. I mean, it literally doesn't weigh hardly anything either if you want to set the platform up. So I've really enjoyed it, especially for, like you said, packing in. Uh, it, it's, it's definitely uh, been something that I was needing for sure. You named my system. <laughs> the <good> <laughs> I had the level of the sticks, and that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, and my complaint is less, I'm not so much as the weight, it's just the, 
your efficiency of yes. moving through the woods, like you make a ton of noise that just cause you got so much on your back and it's not, it's hard to get it all strapped down tightly. And then it always catches on something. You're moving through the dark. Uh, and there's just enough factors out there. And, and where I'm walk, hiking through the Hills, I got another factor of just trying to like my steppings and I've slipped and fell. And it's just, it's annoying. And so I'm just looking for a system that allows me to efficiently get through the woods without making enough noise and I can get to the right area. And then when I set up, like I'm done. Right. It's just, I hate to say it's stressful. I was like, <laughs> I get so annoyed when I hear a deer that's, you know, catches me in the woods. I'm like, now nah, I got to move another 800 mm-hmm. yards or something until I can feel like I'm in the right spot and I haven't spooked anything. Well, let me, let me just add a couple things real quick that I think may also perk your interest. I mean, when he says it's all in a small backpack, I use a small Jan sport backpack from Walmart to hunt in literally all of my stuff, including my camera gear goes in just a basic, like, you know, send your kid to school backpack. Okay. Um, I saved 13 and a half pounds because the lone wolf is gone. I don't count the weight of my saddle because it weighs the exact same as my safety harness. So if you're using a safety harness, seldom anybody ever considers that part of the weight of their system. Um, Mm -hmm. so literally I took a, I think with all my modifications on it, it was about almost 15 pounds. My predator platform weighs about two and a half pounds. So, you know, you're looking at a 13 pound weight differential there, which is not insignificant if you're in the place that you're hunting. I'd say the biggest benefit that you might see is if you're hunting in that steep terrain, no matter how high you climb, your backside of you up against that hill, you know, the deer are, are not, you know, any further below you. And the one thing the saddle proved to me more than anything is the ability to use that tree to hide from game species. I dude, I had deer. I would, some of the places I hunted this past year, I was only hunting 12 feet off the ground and I had deer underneath the tree I was in routinely last year. And they never once looked up at me. And I'm just talking like a, a pine tree, you know, just a Southern pine tree, nothing special to it, no limbs to protect me, but I was able to move around the tree and your, your outline kind of like your, your camo pattern is just, it changes. You look like a, an offshoot off the tree instead of this awkward like 90 degree angle that juts off and doesn't look natural at all no i've never even thought about that yeah. just you're able to that's pretty sick yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's i mean i you know i hate absolutes and i'm trying to quit saying the word never and always but honest to god i don't i can't see a world where i, where I will ever use a tree stand again maybe something you know catastrophic could happen and i'd use, lose my legs or something and i'd have to but like I just don't see myself ever lugging that thing in. It's just, it's inefficient. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's worth, it's, it's worth every penny. And like you mentioned it, I mean, it's super quiet. Like, yeah. I, I've noticed that like, I don't make any noise. There's no clanks. I'm, I mean, it is, it's definitely is a lot quieter than the system I had before with less modifications and wrap or tying stuff down and all that stuff. So that that's definitely a big difference too. Well, Chase, your first the the first buck you killed this year, you credit the saddle for the reason why you killed it because you couldn't have got a lock on in. In fact, you couldn't even get your predator on in the tree you were in. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's another thing is the, the trees. You, you got a lot more options on trees that you can yeah. get in. And I can probably say, I mean, all the the hunts I have done in the saddle, I mean, really. Yeah, like I said, I'm not getting busted because, like I said, you can kind of work your way around. If you see the deer coming, you can kind of work mm-hmm. your way around that tree. And they're just – it seems to me like they're not looking up as much <laughs> as, <laughs> yeah. as they have in the past. Yeah. 
but yeah, you need to you need to get one. What's the longest you guys have sat in it? Like, can you go all, all day. day in it? All day. Yeah, yeah. I, I've sat. I I had. I didn't hunt that often last year because I had other things demanding my time, but I had three all day hunts in it. That's awesome. Yeah. So here's here's the thing that a lot of people don't realize about a saddle is, and and this is for the listeners as well. If you haven't gotten into a saddle or if you're struggling with your saddle, it takes a couple sits to figure out how it sits on your body and what's comfortable for you. So unlike a summit where you put it on the tree, you sit down, it's a three-inch cushion, it feels comfy. A saddle's not like that. You have to adjust it such that it fits your butt, right? Everybody's got a different shaped butt, so you have to use the micro adjusters. You have to do things to, to like, you know, make it fit you. You have to play with your tether height. So it takes, I'd say maybe four to five like attempts before you've got it perfect. But I mean, once you figure out your sweet spot, dude, I mean, I, and especially once you add a back band to it, which is a, is a no brainer and a must have, um, man, I can sit in that thing all day, day. It, but it's no different. Like you could go, it's no different than like a climbing harness. So if I really wanted to go test it before going to the woods, my, my, three four-year-old son loves to go rock climbing at like this rock climbing area like i could go test it out there to like just get the adjustment right and sit in and try it out and get the right weight and the right configuration you're talking Is about that something? you're talking about a, a like a like a mantis you could take a mantis and do that yeah yeah i mean you could i mean you could also just do it in the back in the backyard like you don't have to be I elevated guess, yeah. you can you can literally put your tether on it yeah. and, and, this, and then this is what i tell a lot of people is you have to learn to trust that system too and the first thing i tell people to do is put it on strap to the tree and flip upside down it, there's no way it's coming off your body and once you recognize that you can move from there but i mean dude all your adjustments should happen at tree level i wasn't saying that you know you need to go actually out into the woods and hunt i mean yeah it's the same process whether you're standing on the ground or standing on a platform. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 sweet though, dude. I, it's a, it, for most, it's the only way that they'll hunt once they go that way. And at a bare minimum, it's a tool, a must-have tool in almost everybody's toolbox. That's how I view it. I might have to put an order in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's let's do this. I wanted to, and I, this is my fault as a host. I had some rapid-fire questions to help. Uh, get the listener familiar with you, but we'll use this just as a funny, uh, funny middle midpoint for the podcast. Sound good? Sounds good. All right, Chase, I'm going to kick this off. Lock on or climber? Climbers. Okay. Uh, well, I think you already answered this, but I'll go ahead and ask it again. <laughs> Whitetail or mule deer? Whitetail all day, every day. <laughs> Moose or Rocky Mountain bighorn? Moose. All right. Uh, public land or private? Uh, I'm a private land guy right now. Face paint or face mask? So you're going to rapid fire this. I was a face mask, but now I've grown a beard that's significantly. (laughs) (laughs) And so I've had to pivot to face paint. (laughs) I tell people that the the, the beard is my face mask. I don't worry about it after that. It's broken (laughs) it up. (laughs) Yeah, I don't wear a face mask. (laughs) Chase just looks at deer and kills him. I mean, he's just, you know. (laughs) <laughs> exactly uh all right i, well, I think you kind of answered this too but scent control or play the wind you got to do both all right fixed blade or mechanical i'm a mechanical guy okay what's your mechanical choice it is a rage broadhead right now Righteous. actually i just tr- I, i've been a rage guy but i just tried the wasp uh mechanical wasp archery and that's mm-hmm. great success that was pretty awesome 
Oh, I don't know. I'll look into that. I didn't know they had mechanicals. Freezer full of meat or wall full of antlers? Both. Nah, you got to pick one, man. Come on. <laughs> well, if, I'd rather have a freezer full of meat. Okay. Uh, okay. That, 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 that's priority number one. Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, would you rather a hot lead from a buddy on active whitetails, or would you rather have a cell camera blowing up your phone with pictures? Uh, cell cam blowing up pictures. Okay. I will not. I'm a... I have to track and scout all my deer. I know it. I cannot. No one can put me on a deer and like tell me here's the movements of it. Here's how it's going, you know. And I just kind of they team me up for success. I have to put in the game plan. Like the, it, that's the fun aspect for me. Oh, uh, hold on a second. Mark Drury calls you up and says, William, I've got the next world record whitetail coming out every day at 8.45 a.m. You're going to sit there and tell him, well, i got to look at the trail camera pictures myself, or are you going to take him up on that opportunity? I'm going to say, Mark, I will, I'll film you shooting it. And wow. I'll- <laughs> oh. <laughs> Mark Drury's not going to do that. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. So. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Out there. Okay, every, every deer you kill – is at least a Pope and Young, or you can beat the world record by 50 inches once, but you never take another rack deer. Oh, Pope and Young every year. <laughs> I'm, I'm torn on that one. I couldn't decide when yeah. I typed that one up. I was like, ah, I don't know which one I'd go for. Legendary status? I mean, which one? But Okay, this is my favorite, and I timed this, I timed this perfectly so I could ask this one. Bold prediction, who's going to shoot a bigger buck, myself or Chase? Chase. <laughs> Dead gummit. <laughs> <laughs> I needed some mojo my way. He's already got me crushed as it is, but you know. <laughs> uh, oh man. I, I like I like rapid fire. They always kinda they tell every question kinda tells you something about somebody. I love how you stuck to your guns about uh, doing it yourself. You know, the, I really dig. I learned early on every deer has their own personality and they're all unique. And getting to know them is kind of a weird, creepy thing. I think it's every, it's almost like every deer is like a dog. Like, trust me, they yeah. have their own idiosyncrasies. They have their own personalities. Uh, and getting to know them and how they move and how what they do and how they do it um, with the advent of like trail cameras and really, you can learn so much about deer. Uh, I really like that's my it's it's creepy. It's kind of weird. But that's what I love to do. I love to pattern big white tails. And if I can find one, that is like made my season. It's like my season this year is a little, it's not a bad season, but I, I don't, ha- I've yet to find a, you know, a big uh, old mature white tail that I can get on. Uh, I have a couple, like when I say big and old, I, I, I want a five and a half, six and a half. I don't care how big the antlers are. But the age is what I can, you know, that deer is smart. He's gotten old. He's got big, big body wise. Um, that's what I look for. And I've yet to find one thus far. I have so many trail cameras out running around right now trying to get one. Uh, but once you can find that one and then you can start learning their pattern, learning their kind of seasons, how they move through the woods and then how to put the game plan together and teen it up for success. Like that is what gets me so excited. Uh, all the deer that I had coming up into this that I've been kind of looking for, they've not not shown up. And so, like, I don't have any of the really old boys running around in my trail cameras. So it's kind of a, kind of a bummer. 
but I think they're going to pop back up here shortly. Once the cold front, colder weather starts coming in and they kind of really settle into the kind of the, the winter ranges that they, they sit on. I'm hoping they show back up, but like that, that is my passion, man. That that's where my heart's at. Go ahead, Chase. Uh, I'm just going to say that's, uh, that's speaking my language right there. Cause like you said, <laughs> I'm, I'm all about the strategy, man. There's deer that keep me awake at night just, and I've got one that I'm after right now, um, that I would call a, a mega giant for Florida. <laughs> And I've had, I've, I've at least got two years of history with them now. And it, like I said, it's just trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together to finally get our pass to cross <laughs> is what's what I'm more interested in right now than actually probably the kill itself at this point. Obviously, that's part of it, but it's, it's like, okay, I, how am I going to get on this deer? He's kind of a ghost sometimes, but he does make daylight appearances here and there. And I, I just enjoy that aspect of it at this point where I'm at, uh, hunting wise, uh, probably the most. It's getting in, it's that game plan. It's so crucial. And in the wind patterns and how they move with certain winds. And I know they don't, they claim now people, the people say that the moon doesn't affect the, the rut and everything, but the moon definitely affects deer's movement. Mm-hmm. And I've found that, you know, certain deer will move on certain moon nights and whether they can see the moon or not see the moon and how the wind and the pressure changes, like, uh, you can start figuring out how this deer moves and how they basically they have like two or three bedding areas I've found. And, uh, the older they are, their, their home range kind of shrinks. And depending on when they get up in the morning, I'm going to say morning, but it could be the start of what they call their day. And whatever time that is, it could be in the middle of the night. It could be in the afternoon, but their general pattern is they get out of their bedding area and they have kind of like three or four routes that they take. Uh, and those three or four routes is predicated based on wind, pressure, thermals, everything. And that they kind of set that motion and uh, pass. And so then you got to think through all the factors that could affect that because that's really what hunting's about. So like, a coyote could play into that and screw up your day because you think that they're going to go this ridge, this valley, and kind of migrate this direction. You're all set up perfectly, but unbeknownst to you, you know, the deer smelled a coyote and caused him to stay stay longer in a spot or move this direction or, you know, whatnot. Um, and so it's really a cat and mouse game that you're playing with them and trying to figure out how your paths can, can cross. And then once they cross, if you're bow hunting, you got to get them in the right direction uh, get them in the right area and hope that they walk within bow range and you can make a clean ethical shot. It's so many moving pieces and it's so difficult, but when it all comes together, it is, it is the most sublime. It is so awesome. No doubt. So I'm curious. I, I used to be a private land hunter. I feel like I've completely lost touch with that component, like the mindset of hunting private land, because I, I'm almost exclusively now public land, and it's a different game all all in itself. And neither is better. Just before anybody gets riled up by that statement, neither is a better way of going about things. They're both different. They're both unique challenges. I'm curious, how do you approach your deer season? What are you doing to get on mature deer on a on a piece of private? Uh, it's mainly looking. I've, I've gotten to know Grant Woods and he's given me some good advice, but it, you got to look at the macro, like the micro macro level. And so like, if you look at a map, you got to look at kind of like what, you know, if you're hunting this X amount of land, you know, what are your neighbors doing and what are their strategies? And you get to know what their strategies are or lack thereof. If you're lucky, you can play that to your advantage. And so 
you know, deer needs food, cover, water. But if you look at the micro macro and see that your, you know, your neighbors are all planting tons of food plots, then you may be better off planting tons of cover. And so you got to really kind of pick out what's going around, how the deer are moving through your land, why they're moving through your land, uh, and then kind of put a game plan together. And so for us, where I'm hunting, food is so crucial. Uh, it is, it's all timber. And so we spend a lot of time clearing land to make it uh, above average food plots. So we now have soybeans everywhere where we are. There's no agriculture. It's all timber. And so that's drawn a ton of deer going through our property. Uh, and so what we then do is then, all right, when did the big bucks come through? Cause there's every big buck's going to start finding you know, they're going to hit your food sources at some point. And then you start picking a game plan. All right. Since I'm hunting food sources, I need to figure out how they're getting to those food sources. And if you're lucky, uh, that avenue that gets you in there, it's on your land. And if it's not on your land, then you need to pick two ways to go after them. You can get them during the rut, but that's more hit or miss um, because they, you know, they could get locked down with their doe much early on. And especially the old boys, they get their does first, trust me, um, is to kind of lay low during the rut. Uh, It's a weird thing. It's counterintuitive, but don't spend a ton of time in the tree stand in the woods it's disrupting educating the deer unless it's absolutely perfect uh it's better to hunt smart than hunt a lot and so but come later season once the rut dies down the big boys everyone needs food and if food is your kind of main driver your main key strategy to be successful i found great success in the late season because they're moving through daylight and come late season there's nothing to eat especially where we are. And so if you have the main food source in that area, those guys are going to be coming in. And so just sitting up on the, you know, keying in when they're coming in and hit that food source, making sure you understand uh, is so crucial. Kind of the, the caveat of all of that is like I said, you got to hunt smart. And so you can't be educating your deer, you know, you got to have your en- exit entry routes timed perfectly. Uh, you can't have, you know, giant stands. You can't have, that's why I like the climber stands. Um, even the lock-ons is you can't have a stand in a static spot they if you educate them they're going to know and they're going to they're going to every day time you're in the woods you're giving them data to give them success to evade you and so if you're moving in and out not disrupting the woods and hunting smart they're not going to know you're there and come the late season when the food is the main driver i'm pretty confident you'll be successful uh, with this strategy. That sounds awesome, man. I love, I love hearing the di- the different like ideas of how everybody approaches things differently. For me, I don't care about like blowing an area up because I've got a hundred other people potentially hunting that same area and one, and maybe one or two of them don't know not to blow that area up, you know? So like a, mm-hmm. my first opportunity, if I get a chance, I just dive right on in there. And in fact, last year when I fully abandoned the game plan and just started like walking my way in, finding hot sign, and setting up, that's when all of a sudden, every, actually, from December 8th on through our season and late January, I saw a buck every sit. And it was that's just, awesome. yeah, yeah, well, it was a, a hell of a turnaround. I didn't see a first deer until December 8th. So, <laughs> you know, it was, it was tough. But, um, I mean, you find something that works for you and you get after it, and it sounds like you've definitely done that. So what, when you're hunting with the public land you're hunting, if you have a good sized chunk of public land mm-hmm. that you can hunt, it's awesome. Cause you're able to get, you can 
pretty much have the whole range of the deer. And I mean, the deer's going to move. If you're willing to put the effort in, I, I've, when I've hunted public land, I've always had to like lock my trail cameras to the tree and, yeah. you know, hide it in some obscure way because people will find it. But if you're willing to put the legwork in, the public land gives you a huge uh, opportunity to uh, pattern a deer's entire range and then you can put a game plan together. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, you know, even in the South where the cover, you know, Chase and I talk all the time, you can't, you can't identify bed, beds around here as easily as you can other places. I'm sure you can do it. I know people who have done it, but there's so much bedding everywhere. You know this. And what I found is there are ideal places. You know, there are better areas, blocks that deer like to bed in. And I've started identifying those, find a transition area next to it. And, you know, you start hunting pressure around that. It's like, okay, well, the whole south side of this block is easily accessible by the road. And we know they're bedding here. And we know they're probably moving into the swamp to feed on acorns because that's your that's what's dropping right now. And you can kind of intersect those and, and hunt both the pressure and the deer's range. It's it's a cool game, man. I've 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 had some awesome opportunities, but I haven't quite sealed the deal. Uh, this will be year two hunting public hard. It's it's its own interesting challenge. But you're right. You definitely if you have a big enough piece of land, you can start to kind of put together a pattern like the whole life life's pat or um, seasonal pattern for an animal. You got it. Yeah. So. William, we're sitting at a little over an hour now, and I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but one of the things we try and do with every guest is have them share some story or some experience, and you told me you've got one picked out you think that everybody would enjoy, and I'd love to give you the floor, and uh, let's hear it. So this is a funny story. That's my favorite. And it, it's one of the, it's when I was little, and it's one of, my dad always makes fun of me. It's one of the more embarrassing stories, and so I'll... <laughs> <laughs> one of the first times I ever went to a deer stand by myself, I was probably, and everyone remembers, I don't when you hunt, when you're little, everyone remembers that first time when you like, you're used to hunting with your dad or your mom, whoever, your uncle, whoever took you hunting. And you're now in the stand by yourself. And it's like, and in the morning, you know, the light fades, they walk you into the stand with the flashlight, you get up in the stand, you're all by yourself. And so I remember I was all by myself and my dad said, you have two bullets and here are your two bullets. And he's like, here you go. And I thought to myself, no way I can be successful with two bullets. What if <laughs> a bunch of deer come my way? Then, you know, I got to break out, you know, coyotes could come. And so I secretly snuck like six, maybe 10, maybe even 14 bullets <laughs> into my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> and so I walk into the stand. I think I was like seven years old and we walk into the stand he puts me up in this little tripod thing we had. And so he walks off and he probably walked 400 yards away to another stand and the sun broke and I was all punkered down, ready to go. And this little doe came out and I was shaking like a leaf and I was so, and I was like all by myself and I was like talking to myself, like I was on camera, like a crazy person, like, Oh my God, here we go. It's game time. And so I unleashed and shot and missed and I shot and missed. And I may have shot all 14 rounds. I may have had 20 rounds. Who knows how many rounds I had shot this <laughs> But I unleashed everything I had and that doe just kept standing there 30 yards away. She never ran. I never hit her. And I was out of ammo. <laughs> and for whatever reason, I thought to myself, I needed ammo. And so I screamed to my dad, dad, I'm out of ammo. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and and there were, we were in, we were in Alabama on the lease land, and so we had guys all around us, and everyone heard me, and they're like, "What is that kid doing? Is he crazy or something?" <laughs> and my dad came over, and he just cuffed me on the back of the head. He was like, you know, so mad at me. He's like, why would you ever do that? And so I lost my hunting privileges by myself for the rest of the season. Oh man, oh, man. that must have been devastating. <laughs> He was so mad at me, but I learned my lesson. But that—that's the joke, or that's the story that I can <laughs> tell. So this must be a thing, Chase. You can tell. Well, you—you you got into hunting a little later, so this may not apply to you. But evidently, this is a thing because I had a similar experience when I was younger, and I guess it kind of like along the lines of when you're backpacking, you pack your insecurities. If you're worried about running out of food, you pack more food. You probably don't need it, but. When I was younger, dad was just giving, I was probably about 16 or so. He was really letting me go out on my own. I got into deer hunting later than, you know, some kids do. We were mainly a small game family. And he gave me this uh, Remington 742, it's a .30-06, my granddad's uh, brush gun. He's like, you know, you're going to walk 200 yards this way. I set up a stand for you, climb up in the stand, stay there. And he gave me three bullets. And that, that whole night, I remember going, God, I'm going to run out of ammo. You know, what happens if, like, nine deer run out? I had the same thought you did. So that night, that night I get home, I'm like, I'm going to put two more boxes of ammo in my bag. So I snuck into my dad's <laughs> office, and I took two more boxes of ammo out of the, the ammo crate, put it in my in my backpack, and we were – I mean, it was like three weeks later, dude, and my dad's gun's off. He's like, oh, I don't want to go all the way back to the house. I was like, well, what, which gun did you bring? He goes, I've got the Bushmaster. And uh, maybe it's not a Bushmaster. It's the 742. And he, and he goes, we're out of ammo. And I said, you've only got the three rounds for your gun, right? And I was like, well, I mean, I might have one or two extra rounds in my bag. <laughs> so, so I pull out. I don't pull out the box. I just reach in and pull out two rounds. I'm like, yeah, see, here you go. And I hand it to him. He takes two shots, and one's high and one's low. And he's like, God, we just need to go home. I was like, well, maybe I've got one more. So, like, we go through a box of ammo. And finally, my dad looks up from tinkering with the gun and goes, how many rounds do you have? And I looked in there, and I had two more unopened boxes. And he's like, how long have you been toting these around? I was like, pretty much since last year. You know, like. <laughs> and he, he was like, he was befuddled. He's like, what are you going to do with nine deer? Like, what? what? <laughs> so, yeah. That's you never awesome. know. A herd of deer could come out of the woods. And when you're that age, you think you got to kill them all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. I mean, the worst fear would be running out of ammo, right? And having to scream to your yep. dad across the woods, you know? I mean, yep. who wants to do that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. That's awesome, dude. Well, if you'll hang on one second, I'm going to wrap this up, but we want to chat with you afterwards. Okay. Guys, this was a blast. We laughed way more than anybody has any right to in an hour while recording this. So I know you're going to laugh equally. So, but do us a favor, go and tell somebody about the podcast. We don't put any money into marketing. We're all word of mouth and you guys have been great at growing the podcast. Tell somebody about the podcast, share it with somebody. And until next time, get outside and I hope you shoot straight.